welcome to Reductio Adventures and Ideas. I'm your host, Andrew Lavin. Reductio is a show about philosophy, about ideas, and about understanding ourselves and our world more clearly. Brought to you by Inverted Spectrum Media. I was over at a friend's house. Uh, She's a woman. And we were talking about exercise and how we were both looking for a gym. And I made a joke um, comparing the type of gym that I was looking for to women, uh, meaning I wanted something uh, that was not overpriced. I talked with Michael Nicholson a bit about gender and he brought up this story. And, you know, she, she stopped me and she was like, Mike, you, you really got to watch out when you make those jokes now. You know, that's, that's not really cool. Michael is a trans man. When I met him, he was not fully out, but was out as gender queer. Not long after he came out as a man. And I was like, you know, why not? She goes, well, you're a guy and you're calling women cheap. Transitioning in his 20s meant he had to relearn some social norms since he was now socially a guy. He had to rethink his own social position and his own sense of himself. And I was actually offended at her at Mm. first because I had lived my life, at least outwardly, as a woman um, longer than she's been alive. And I like put my stake in that right away, you know? And I'm like, so who are you to tell me, you know, just cause I'm uh, transitioning, I don't want to change who I am. And she was like, you know, that's your decision, but I am going to treat you like a guy. And if any one of my guy friends made this joke, I would call them out on it. And Michael thinks he might've gotten away with the joke when he was presenting and performing as a woman. It might not have been a big deal, but now that he was out as a man, the rules had changed and Michael had to change with it. And I took that home and for like a week at least, maybe two, I told this story to several other friends and fortunately I have a very good friend network because they all told me you might be wrong about this one. And yeah, she was right. If I had a friend who was a guy who just made a shitty joke about, you know, cheap women, yeah, you know, that's not cool. And so I really had to check myself. And this led to Michael thinking about jokes like this differently. As a man, but that sort of joke, it makes you wonder, you know, when, if at any time, is a joke like that really okay? Because... What if somebody born female um, is actually non-binary? Can they make that joke, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't have an answer to that, but this definitely did make me uh, reconsider in general, you know, jokes that just marginalize women because, you know, we've always made those kinds of jokes.
Our topic today is identity again. We did identity in one sense last time, but I wanted to revisit identity in another sense, our social identities and the ways in which they determine our social standing. What sorts of jokes can we make? How are we perceived by others? Who gets to say what and do what? All of these questions have something to do with the identity groups by which we are identified by others and with which we build our own identities. Let's get started. Hey y'all, I wanted to highlight a podcast that's one of my personal favorites, Overthink, by Ellie Anderson and David Peña Guzman. Um, They produce it, and they always find fascinating ways to analyze topics of contemporary importance in fun and engaging ways. Highly recommended. Everyone identifies themselves with various groups. I'm a Californian, a white person, a man, a blonde, a philosopher, a mostly straight person, a cisgendered man, and so on. These groups that we belong to are an important piece of how we think about ourselves and how we identify ourselves to others. Last time we talked about three questions of personal identity. First, what sort of thing is a person? Second, how do we identify a person through time? Third, what happens when a person is duplicated? This episode, I want to focus on a different aspect of personal identity, the groups that we identify ourselves with. These are almost like the building blocks out of which we build our identities and come to understand our place in the world. We might call this social identity. Our social identity not only gives us a sense of who we are as a person, informs our own self-conception, but what's more is that it determines where we exist in the social world. Amy Kind, our expert from the last episode, had a bit more to say about social identity. Earlier, we talked about the fact that there are many different problems of personal identity. And so on the one hand, there's the problem of identification, where we ask just what is a person? And then on the other hand, there's the problem of re-identification, where we ask what makes something the same person over time. And that's actually what we spent a ton of time already talking about. I actually think there's a third question, too. And I call it the characterization question. And so it's a question about like what sort of characterizes me as the person that I am. The third question we might ask about personal identity is how do I characterize myself as a person? What sort of descriptions do I use to answer the question, who are you? And often the answer that is given to the characterization question has to do with a sort of narrative conception of the self. And so we make ourselves the selves that we are by telling or living a narrative um, where we weave the different parts of our life into a narrative. Now, notice that this question, it's, it's different. It's not just what makes me a person and it's not what makes me the same person over time, but it's more what makes me the person that I am. What makes me the person that I am? You might notice an answer here to some of the conversation I had with my friend Ben Colahan from the Monad before this episode. He liked a narrative view of the self and saw that as answering the question, am I the same person after a transporter? And that may well be true, but a narrative view of the self is most clearly an answer to the question, what makes me the very person I am? And I think when we ask that question, what makes me the person that I am, um, we will see that all sorts of things come into play that didn't come into play with respect to the other questions. So questions about um, my race, questions about my gender, questions about my nationality, questions about 
the way I conceive of myself as contributing to the world, whether in terms of an, an official occupation or just what my passions are. So, you know, perhaps being a philosopher is central to my conception of myself as a person, or perhaps being a mother is central to myself, um, central to the conception I have of myself as a person. Now, that's not to say that they're part of what makes me the same person over time, because of course, I was still Amy Kind at the age of 16 when I was not a philosopher and I was not a mother. But yet, nonetheless, they're part of what, at this point in my narrative, what makes me the, they're part of what makes me the person that I am. Um, so I think that's one way of understanding when we talk about racial identity or we talk about gender identity or we talk about ethnic identity, um, how those considerations sort of get into the story about personal identity. And it's questions about what makes us the person that we are. So there are different questions we could ask about personal identity. What makes me the same person through time? What sort of thing is a person? And then there's this third question, and it's the third question that we start to ask questions that involve identity groups like genders, races, sexualities, and so on. It's the third question that deals with identity in the sense of identity politics. That third question is, what makes me me? What sort of person am I? How do I conceptualize myself? With whom do I identify? Which struggles are mine? Which interests are mine? like me, my identity. It's like, yes, I'm a person, but who am I, right? Like what kind of person I am? What person am I? And that's where I think the characterization question comes in. So the identity and identity politics and identity groups and gender identity is the sense where there's something like a concept we use to characterize ourselves as individuals. Identities are the building blocks of personal identity. I build up a self-conception by identifying myself with other people who are like me. And it's not just me doing this. Others are doing it too. These identities I inhabit and embody are ways of being in the social world that I claim for myself, that others foist upon me, and that the rules of sociality dictate that I be. Let's take a break and then we'll ask the question, are these social kinds real things or are we making a sort of mistake when we talk about them? Just plugging a great philosophy podcast here, The Philosopher and the News. Philosophers talk about issues arising in the headlines, timely, well-interviewed by Alexis Papazoglu, and really fun to listen to. When you think about it, there are actually a number of different questions that are worth discussing in the area of social identity groups. Are these groups real in any sense of the word? What exactly is the relationship between an individual and the groups with which they identify? What comes out of the process of identifying oneself with a group or an identity? Like, what follows? I talked with Jason Werbloff from South Africa about identity. He's skeptical of social groups. I'm Jason Werbloff. I have a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Advertisrand in Johannesburg, South Africa. He did a dissertation essentially arguing that social groups aren't real in any meaningful sense and I did my PhD on social groups, trying to look at what social groups are and do they exist at all? And I argued that I'm not sure they do exist. Before we get into all that, I wanted to mention something extra cool about Jason. He runs a podcast called Brain in a Vat with a cat called Mark Oppenheimer. I run a podcast called Brain in a Vat. It's both a YouTube channel and a podcast. Um, we release 
simultaneously every week. And we talk about philosophy from the perspective of everyday people. Um, we've talked about everything from is the lockdown legitimate, trolley problems, utilitarianism, and time travel. So yeah, all sorts of interesting philosophical problems. You should check it out. One thing I like about Jason and Mark is that they're argumentative. So you really get to hear people doing philosophy and engaging directly with the ideas the guest is presenting. It makes for some fun and lively discussions. Okay, so we have all these social groups, right? The, the black folks, the white folks, the queer folks, the cis folks, the trans folks, and so on. One question we might ask is about the diachronic identity of these groups. Diachronic identity? This is a fancy Greekish word that means something like through time. So when we talk about diachronic identity, we're talking about our identity or sameness through time, at one time and then at another later or earlier time. So we'll say, what makes you who you are today, given that you also existed yesterday or a year ago, or 10 years ago? What, what is the common thread between that person a year ago or 10 years ago and the person you are today? What makes you you over time? We can ask questions about the diachronic identity of a person, but we might also ask questions about the diachronic identity of a social group like African-American folks. And the question about social groups is often phrased in terms of diachronic identity. What is it that makes a group a group over time? Because it seems like just like people can change over time, groups can change over time. So an individual person changes over time. Their cells change, their bodies change, their minds change. And similarly with groups, things can change over time. So the group membership can change over time. Um, so a group, let's say a political party, might have a certain leader at a certain time and a different leader at another time, different members over time. And yet we still think it's the same political party. And also its beliefs can change, right? So a group's goals and its central ideas can shift over time. And yet we can still say that's the same group. How come? How come in the case of persons, they persist through time and how come Groups persist through time despite changes as well. So imagine a group of individuals. In fact, you don't have to imagine. This happened at Vidvardestrand, where Jason did his PhD. Groups of individual people in South Africa protesting university fees. And they were chanting, and they really caused, you know, a lot of, a lot of interest. And there was, you know, the police arrived, and it, it looked like there were these a clash between two groups, right? So it looked like there was a clash between the police and a clash between these chanting protesters. So you have these two sets of individual people. One set of people are sort of loosely organized around wanting lower university fees. Another set are the police. Jason wants to focus on the protesters, though. And the question I had was, what is it that makes these protesters a group? Why don't we think of them as a bunch of disparate individuals? Because on any other day, any other given day on that concourse, that university concourse, there are a whole bunch of individuals milling around. Some are eating lunch. Some are going to their classes. Some are singing. Others are playing frisbee or hacky sack. Maybe one or two are chanting, but we wouldn't think of them together as a group. We would think about them maybe as a lot of little groups, but generally as individuals. Why is it that day when all these people were chanting together around protesting fees, did we think that that was a group of people and that there was another group of people called the police who arrived to confront them? Why was that the case? What is it about this group of individuals engaged in protest that is different from a group of individuals doing a bunch of disparate activities? Why on one day would we say a group of students were protesting while on a different day we wouldn't even refer to them as a group at all? And, what, and, and then I start to think, well, 
it seems like there are these two concepts. The one is a mere aggregate of individuals and the other is a social group. And what are the necessary and sufficient conditions? In other words, what are the conditions under which we think that we can distinguish between um, groups and mere aggregates of individuals? Before we continue, though, we have to ask some questions. Before trying to answer the question, what is different between groups proper and mere aggregates of individuals, we have to get a bit clearer on what we mean by the distinction itself. This way of doing philosophy is sometimes called giving a thick description of the phenomenon we're interested in, social groups in this case. Yeah, so groups seem to have certain characteristics. When we survey groups that we want to say are more than mere aggregates, we notice some things. So one of those characteristics is that can they can persist through time, but also groups can be responsible for their actions. Um, so we might want to hold Nazis accountable for World War II atrocities, for example. We can hold groups responsible, sanction groups for wrongdoing, allow groups to act in certain ways and disallow them to act in other ways. Uh, we also think that groups have value. So we think, for example, that there is value in investigating the culture of groups, like the culture of the Aztecs or the history of the Aztecs, more than just in, in investigating each of the individuals in that group. We actually think there's value in investigating the group as a whole. The 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill called these groups infinite kinds. Some of them are called natural kinds, but we're interested in what philosophers might call social kinds here. Kinds, properly speaking, are things we can investigate beyond what we can learn using only logic. This all gets a bit technical and brings us a little bit too far from Jason's research, but here's the basic example. The set of all yellow things isn't really a kind, since nothing we learn about them will be something surprising. It will be deducible from logic and the laws of physics alone. If something's yellow, then certain things follow. Humans, though, we will continue to learn surprising things by studying them. There's more to humans than we can deduce from the concept of human. So we've at least got a little bit on the table about what makes a group different from an aggregate. A group is something we might care about epistemically. We might learn something about a group, and that might be important for learning something about the way the world is put together. We might investigate groups for a while and learn interesting and surprising things, things that aren't included in the criteria we use to group these individuals together in the first place. In social groups, we might hold responsible for their actions. We might think of them as acting together in the first place. Mere aggregates don't act together. So now we're ready to ask the question, what is it that makes a group a group? What is the glue that holds individuals together in the special way that makes them a group rather than a random aggregate of individuals? So a mere aggregate, let me give you an example of a mere aggregate. Um, all the people who wear brown shoes, so all the people who wear brown shoes, they don't seem to be a group per se, because they don't seem to have collective value. And it seems like they can't act together and take responsibility for those actions. All the people that wear brown shoes. I wear brown shoes sometimes. Maybe the group is even weirder. It's, it's the set of all people who are currently wearing brown shoes. When I'm wearing brown keens, I'm in the set. When I'm not, I'm out of the set. Why isn't this a proper group? Why? Because why? they don't even know about each other, right? So 
Um, you know, whereas a social group like the protesters, they, they might not know each other individually, but they seem to commonly identify in some way, and they seem to act together. We can talk about the force of the protesters or the force of the police, um, and that seems to be very important in ways which don't apply to mere aggregates. So it seems like the subjective states of the people in the groups will be important, their beliefs, knowledge, intentions, desires, and so on. I'm an analytic philosopher, so I'm just going to talk about it from my framework. Okay, so there's two main theories about um, what we call subjectivist accounts of groups. In other words, groups that rely upon the subjective states or the beliefs and thoughts of the individuals in the group, the group members. There are two subjectivist accounts of groups that Jason discusses. Both agree that what makes a group different from an aggregate are the beliefs, intentions, and so on of the group members, and maybe those of others outside the group. So uh, the one is Gilbert's account. And Gilbert says, what makes you a member of a group is that you believe that you're a member of the group and you believe of the other members that they are members of the group and they believe that of you. So there's this reciprocity between each of you and you self-identify. So, so that's what Gilbert thinks makes you a group. Gilbert thinks that it's the beliefs of members of a social group that grounds the existence of that group. And then the second main account is, is Searle's account. So Searle thinks that what makes you um, a member of a group or, or what makes anything a social phenomenon at all, a group is just a type of social phenomenon, is that people collectively agree that it is. I feel like I can't mention John Searle without mentioning that he has had countless accusations levied against him for sexual harassment, particularly against grad students. And I believe he's had decisions against him at the university level that affected his standing in the department. You can look this all up yourself, but I don't feel right discussing his philosophical views without addressing these facts. He's an interesting thinker, but at this point we can say with some certainty that he's a predator and we have to acknowledge that. So, Searle thinks that really any social phenomenon is what it is because people agree that it is. Think about the example of money. What makes this dollar note? I, you know, he doesn't even want to talk about a dollar note. He says, what, what makes this piece of paper money? What makes it a dollar? And he'd say, well, it's because you collectively agree that it's a dollar. Or what makes this row of rocks a border between two counties? Well, it's because you collectively agree that the, these rocks constitute a border. So he thinks that what makes a group a group is that you collectively agree who the members of that group are, including who you are, that you're a member of the group. So the two subjectivists, Gilbert and Searle, think that what makes a social group is either the beliefs of the members of the group, sort of bootstrapping each other into group member status, or collective agreement. But that's not all. There are objectivist accounts as well. Uh, who say that beliefs don't matter at all, you need to look at the behavior of individuals from the outside. We need to look at how individuals are behaving before we make a judgment on whether there is a social group there or not. We don't need to look inside the minds of the group members at all. It's kind of like looking at a beehive. You can tell that that is a beehive because the bees cooperate or coordinate their behavior in certain ways. So those are objectivist accounts. They look at from an outsider's perspective, what does it look like when we see individuals milling about in such a way that they seem to come together to form a group versus the subjectivists who think it's not about the way people cooperate. Even with no cooperation, you could still have a group because people identify as, as group members. 
A kind of central feature of groups, according to many objectivist accounts, is that groups can act together. They're capable of collective action. Congress can pass laws, citizens can elect officials, sports teams can win games, and so on. Yeah, and that is central to a lot of people's accounts of what, it, what distinguishes a group from a mere aggregate, is that a group can act together, um, whereas a mere aggregate can't. Like a set of numbers can't act, right? It's just a set. A mere aggregate is really a set of individuals. Um, but a group, a group can collectively act in a way that each of its individual members can't. For example, it is possible for you and me to carry a piano up the stairs, whereas neither of us individually could get it up. Even, even if we individually try to get it up the stairs, you try to get it halfway and I get it the other half of the way, it could be the case that the piano is so heavy that neither of us could get it halfway up the staircase individually, but together we can perform the collective action of carrying the piano. So it seems like groups can act together in ways that none of its individual members can. Right. Groups are interesting in that they can do things together that no individuals can do alone. Individuals cannot pass laws, but they can vote for them, organize for them, and so on. Individuals cannot truly win a game. It is the sports team that wins the game, even if the MVP is the only one scoring points. So Jason Werbloff has laid out these different accounts of groups, and there are going to be counterexamples to each different account. If we do the hard work, as Jason did in his dissertation of laying out counterexamples to each, we might find that none of these accounts is truly satisfactory. Then we might be left with a sort of skepticism or even an anti-realism about social groups. This is basically where Jason ends up. Okay, so first, why might we want to go towards a more subjectivist account? What sorts of cases might convince us that an objectivist account is incorrect? So here, here's the big, biggest problem for objectivists. Um, so Sol gives this case, right? So, so case one, you've got all these individuals sitting on the library lawn um, at the university and, um, and, and some thunderclouds come over and thunder starts. In Johannesburg, we have these lovely thunderstorms and the thunder starts. And all of them jump off the grass and pirouette in such a way that someone looking from the distance, it looks like a ballet, right? They pirouette apparently in totally in coordination to, to cover, right? So case one, they do so without any combined uh, foreknowledge, right? So they don't intend to collectively pirouette, but they just, just so happens from the outside that it looks that way. Case two, there are these individuals, the same individuals sitting on the grass, but they have—they're a flash mob, so they have pre-planned this, right? In this case, and because they, it's lightning, it's—it's it's a literal flash mob, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, 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 case two, it's a flash mob, and they have planned to pirouette in such a way that, if viewed from from the from the stands through a camera, it will look like a ballet, right? Both cases, it looks identical. In the second case, it is intended. Searle says the second case is a group, the first case is not. And that seems intuitively right. But the objectivist cannot cash out the difference between the two because, because the inputs and outputs are identical. Lightning strikes, they, they pirouette, right? So, so, so Searle says, you know, the problem is you need collective intentionality, which is a subjective state, in order to understand what distinguishes a group from a mere aggregate. 
So I like this example, but I have my objectivist leaning. So I asked Jason, wait a second, I said, don't the objectivists get to include the behavior of actually coordinating the flash mob? They're on social media. They're sending emails to one another. They're maybe even practicing. I think it's a good response. Um, I, I have an example in my thesis that's supposed to be a souped up version of his example, which I think might avoid your response, which is imagine the protesters again, protesting fees must fall on the Witz campus Case one, they coordinate, right? So they're chanting together. Case two, they're zombies who have no, no conception of other individuals in the world or being part of a group. And they make these noises. And it just so happens that they make them in exactly the same way as the chanters do so that it seems like they're chanting together. Um, objectively, the two cases look the same from the outside, but the one involves a group and the other one doesn't. So that, that case cuts out the, the pre, preconditions, you know, the, the planning, yeah. So imagine the very same objective things happening in the world, except there's no subjective inner life of the people doing the coordinating and the dancing. They're zombies or automata. As I put it when I was talking to Jason, they're monkeys tapping on typewriters. So the apparent coordination is just a coincidence of sorts. I'll admit I'm a bit skeptical of these sorts of scenarios. They start to sound to me like exceptions that prove the rule. On a certain way of doing analytic philosophy, though, these are true counterexamples to the objectivist account. Even if we don't like these sort of counterexamples, we might wonder about the identity of a social group like women through time when a lot about the activity of women as a group has changed through time. So in the beginning, it was we want the vote, right? So at time one, it was we want the vote 100 years ago. Then it became, no, we want equal rights, other rights, not just voting rights. Then it became, no, we want equal pay. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with that per se, but the question is, in, in virtue of what do we think that is the same group? This, too, is a problem for an objectivist account that relies on the sameness of activity to pick out the social group and all of its members. Why, though, might we reject a subjectivist account? One reason to reject the first type of account is that lots of times people might not agree about who belongs in the social group. The question is, can you choose whether you're part of a group? It seems like some groups you can, right? So you could convert to a religion. But then again, certain religions you're born into. So I was born into a Jewish religious uh, family, and I never consented to that, right? So, and I don't self-identify as Jewish, but I am, according to them, right? I am Jewish. Gilbert's account can't work because there are many cases where someone is part of a group without necessarily self-identifying as part of that group. Searle's account, on the other hand, can't work because there's often collective disagreement about who belongs in which group. This has all been far too quick and far too dirty to do justice to the philosophy here, but you get the idea, hopefully. If it turns out that lots of different accounts of social groups fail, we might start to be skeptical of social groups being real at all. Maybe they're just convenient fictions. Maybe they're not even convenient. Some of Jason's worry about social groups comes out of a worry about the idea that someone might claim to represent a whole group. Now, you know, in your suffragette case, um, you're saying they're fighting for the vote for all women, right? For suffrage for all women. So it seems like all women, therefore, are fighting for the vote. But maybe not all women agree, right? Maybe not all women want to fight 
for the vote at the time. You know, it, it's possible many did, but it's possible some didn't. So perhaps they believed in traditional values at, at, the, at that time. Um, and so, so what happens to those cases? And, and they needn't even be exceptional cases. You know, there's examples of groups in history where the leader wants one thing and almost no one else in the group wants it. And they've been leaders who have been assassinated for this. This connects to a host of issues about the relationship between an individual member of a social group and the social group itself. These are complex and fraught philosophical questions, so you can see how someone like Jason Werbeleff might just want to throw up his hands and say, well, maybe there just aren't any social groups at all. I'll talk a little bit about my own thoughts on this at the end of the episode, but for now let's take a break, and then we'll talk with our friend Femi, whom you've already met in previous episodes. Just want to shout out Jason Werbeloff's podcast again, Brain in a Vat. It's a video podcast on YouTube, but they also have audio available on your favorite podcast app. Check it out. The last person I talked to for this episode, okay, I actually talked to him like way before the rest of these folks, was Olufemi Taiwo from Georgetown. You may remember him from Why Does Stuff Cost Money or Season 1, Episode 4. He's a friend of the show. I am, I guess now, an assistant professor at... Georgetown University. Um, I teach philosophy. My research interests center on ethical theory, political philosophy, um, particularly from the perspectives of the Black radical tradition and post-colonial traditions or anti-colonial thought. Femi about the identity in identity politics. What does this word mean? Identity politics is roughly political organizing around identity groups, whether that be white nationalists claiming that America is a white nation or queer folks organizing around their shared struggles. It all seems to be a similar phenomenon in that it is people using their identities as a point of unity with others and using that unity as a source of political power. But why use the word identity? Why not group politics or type politics or something like that? Besides, of course, the fact that these are pretty clunky names. So the identity and identity politics, I mean, it's a bit difficult because you have, I think, meaningfully different conceptions of identity working on what I would think of as, you know, right-wing identity politics, so ethno-nationalism, those sorts of things, then liberal or centrist identity politics, the sort of um, identity politics of disparity, the identity politics of trying to make things equal across identity categories, and then maybe identity politics that are further left, which are have aspirations to some kind of different organization of the world or of politics that kind of owe their character to identitarian struggles in the current iteration of politics and social structure. People on the right and left, and some in the center of the political spectrum, all think in terms of identity at least some of the time. Some, particularly those in the center or center-right, have come to reject identity politics altogether, but they're surrounded on the right and the left by identity politics of very different sorts. Right-wing ethno-nationalism, like white nationalism, for instance, is identity politics using one concept of identity, and left-wing progressive politics have a different concept of identity at play in their politicking. So in one sense, they're doing something similar, but they are doing so using very different concepts of identity. 
And I, I, I think they just have different commitments as to what identity is doing. Okay, so let's break these conceptions down. So, so starting with the right wing, I would say right wing identity politics. So the, you know, kind of the quiet white nationalism of make America great again, and then the louder white nationalism of like Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think the way that they are thinking and using identity is basically just taking it more or less as given from history. People who look either at their actual social position and think, great, or people who look at the social position that ideology picks out for them as the normative one. So the social position they feel they ought to have based on the extant ideologies and think, great, about that. In either event, what's not really going on is a sort of renegotiation of identity, but um, it's, it's a way of being for the status quo, at least ideologically. And then the extent to which that becomes like radical, a radical political project in the extent, in the sense of trying to change the world is just correcting the way that the actual material world fails to conform to the ideology that history has given us in the present day. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why Team Make America Great Again might want to deport people who are not the image of America that it apparently used to be like some, you know, at some point. So, so that's those people. They're just taking identity as given and using it to pursue um, kind of downstream interests. So the right-wing identity politics in America is taking identity as it is given from history. These are the white folks, and this is their role in society, and these are the black folks, and this is their, their role in society, and this is their role in society. They aren't revising or questioning those identities. Then when we get together for political organizing, they're trying to correct the sins of the present. They're trying to revise the current structures so that they map more closely onto the social structures handed down from the past. In short, they're trying to keep people in their place. Then you have um, kind of centrist and liberal conceptions of identity, which I think are often somewhat revisionary. Revisionary in the sense of wanting to revise the understandings of different identities that we get from the past. Right, so these are among the people who will think um, not only are there things about the actual world I'm dissatisfied about, but there are things about this identity category that I've been given that I'm dissatisfied about. So I'm trying to renegotiate both what the world's going ideology says that I am and also things about the actual world which are organized around that conception of the way that the world says that I am. So it's politics on two fronts. It's like, I would like to use, critically use this identity that I've been given um, to, to be critical about actual politics. Um, so I accept that I'm uh, a woman or I accept that I'm black um, but I'm in a material world where the effect of that is being in a category where I'm told I cannot vote. 
Um, and so I both want to change the conceptions of women in black that make it such that, that explain that fact about the material world. And I also want to change that material result, um, which is me not having the right to vote. Centrists and liberals want not only to change the subservience that is loaded into certain identities and the privilege and dominance that's loaded into other identities, but they also want to change the actual conditions that people find themselves in as a result of that dominance and subservience. They want to change the social structure and the identities in the social structure and also want to fix the bad outcomes that come from the social structure. Like, it's, I should still be able to identify as... Um black or as this nationality or as um, this ethnicity or this gender. Um, it just shouldn't be that identifying as that has the consequences that it has um, or has the implications that it has. And so those people, yeah, they, they're socially real kinds, but they want to fight the content of that of the social realities of the kinds and then there's leftist identity politics leftist identity politics are kind of all over the place um but i i mean i think and and some of them could would would share the basic politics on two fronts kind of um thing with liberal and centrist identity politics and the only difference would be in the substantive changes that liberals and centrists want versus what people further left might want. Um, but I think there's also a qualitatively distinct kind of identity politics on the left, which is a, a step past just critical of the identity categories that have been given. Some identity politics might be on further left, might be critical of the very kind of social organization that makes their identity category intelligible. So, I mean, I think in this day and age, the easiest one to wrap our heads around would be gender left identity politics, right? Um, so you may be agender or non-binary or you may be trans. Um, and all of those could involve something like um, the very identity that I claim is a rejection of the normative identity options. And so one of the things I'm trying to change are the ideologies about what identities there even are to choose from and then the, the way that the material world is set up to make those the socially real identities. Right. Um, so, so that would be a kind of different a third category of identity politics. And I think it's important to note anti-capitalist politics is an example of that. Mm -hmm. So there's no proletariat unless there's capitalism, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and so you're identifying as the, you know, as the revolutionary working class, but you're fighting for the elimination of that identity group, ultimately, right. if you're fighting for, you know, socialism. You're not just fighting against disparities from different kinds of folks. You're fighting against the very systems that allow there to be different kinds of folks with disparate outcomes. Let's take a break, and then we'll wrap up things for this season. I want to mention a relatively new philosophy podcast that's pretty cool. It's called Good in Theory, and it's hosted by Cliff Marks. They have a rendition of the main ideas from Plato's Republic, some fun interviews, and, and some great sort of lectures by Cliff, too. So check it out. 
What to make of all this? These are very different conversations on importantly different topics, but what they have in common is the sense that the concept of identity isn't just about who you are and what makes you the same over time. It's also about who you choose to identify yourself with. It's about special kinds of relationships you have with other people, relationships by which you identify yourself and others identify you. Are these kinds that we identify ourselves with real things? Do they exist? Well, that's going to depend centrally on what we think of as real and what qualifies a thing as real. I'm okay calling social kinds real, but I can understand why someone like Jason Werbeloff doesn't. They're weird sorts of things, and the criteria for belonging to this or that social kind are always in flux, always contested, and there are always marginal cases. So I get why you might throw your hands up and say, bah, these are not real at all, they're just made up. I get it but I won't be doing it with you because I think that these things are too important to our self-understanding and our relationships with one another to toss away lightly. What do I think social kinds are? Well, a quick version is I think they're ways of being in the social world. They are sort of like ecological niches. They're roles we can play in complex social environments. There are certain preconditions to playing social roles just as there are preconditions to playing a role in an ecosystem but there's also room for creativity and porousness at the borders of these kinds. That's all a bit quick, but I wanted to give a general sense of what I might say to the questions I'm asking all these kind folks. Thanks to Amy Kind, Jason Werbeloff, and Olufemi Taiwo for sharing their expertise with us. Thanks also to Michael Nicholson for sharing his story with us. We appreciate your vulnerability, and I appreciate you. You know, lots of people have heard of philosopher Bell Hooks, but they might not have heard this bit at an end of an interview she gave recently, where she warned the interview. As long as you don't edit me into saying I like Ayn Rand. It was sort of an odd thing to include in the interview, but you know, I don't want to be mistaken for someone who likes Ayn Rand either, so I get it. Until next time, I'm Andrew Lavin, and this has been a production of Inverted Spectrum Media. <laughs>